it never happens like this. I was dropping off my car for a minor tune-up and was introduced to a man with a very special machine shop here in Los Angeles. We chatted for a bit, and Ken talked about his business, fabricating drive systems for Formula One teams, and I was, of course, interested immediately. Ken Hill of Metal Ore in El Segundo, California, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Ken, let's start with the easy stuff. What's a drive system? Well, it's usually from the gearbox out, usually they're transaxle on Formula One cars, and the whole system is driven by weight, reciprocal weight and all kinds of things. So they're looking for first-class pieces that have good longevity. They try to get around 22, 2400 kilometers on a car set, and then they retire it, put it on test car, test team, or something else. Uh, we're not part of that, but that's where the parts end up being. But we do a lot of really interesting work um, on these parts for Formula One teams. They're very serious about what's going on. And so that's what interested me immediately. Of course, was Formula One something that I've been uh, I've been doing uh, uh, following for years and years and years. And uh, before we get into the specifics of Formula One and what you're doing right now. How did you get into this business? What happened? Give me, give me a little bit of your early years. Early years started, really, I got a phone call from, I think it was Jimmy Chapman from Vells, Parnelli, Jones, Ford, and Torrance. They had an IndyCar, and they had, they had shipped over. Um, Val Militich owned it all, and uh, Parnelli wasn't much, much to do with it, but he had the race team, and he brought in John Barnard, a British guy on a visa or whatever, him and his wife, to work on this car that they had built, IndyCar they had built, and it was nothing but problems. So they had a whole crew work on the thing, started it on it, and I ended up meeting them, and I made a few brake hats, just some aluminum brake hats. What, what am I doing this for? But I got to know them and got to talk to them and got to understanding them. And John Barnard was, I'd go out there on Sunday sometimes and catch up with him. He's out there on the lathe making stuff. He said, I can make this faster than I can draw it up. So he was very, very talented, to this day still is, but got to know him personally and well. And that ended up a relationship that I have no idea how it evolved, but it evolved over and over and over and over. To this day, I still talk to JB, John Barnard, and uh, he's in England um, traveling the world, hanging out, and um, that's what he does now. But uh, I still can talk to him about problems or something which he may be one of the smartest guys I ever run across. And he was one that first knew carbon fiber. I said, what is that? He says, he was up at um, Hercules Powder in Salt Lake City, I think. Went over to learn about it, they, and they ended up building a car out of carbon fiber, a wind tunnel model, and some other things. And all of a sudden, this was the material he wanted for weight versus strength versus stiffness versus all these things that are uh, kind of unfamiliar to me, but in a sense, I know them. But, so we started building drive system for him and half shafts and this, that, and the other, and CV assemblies. And then I made a CV assembly that, uh, it's an odd thing that we had seven-eighths balls in the thing, and they were 125 bucks a ball. It took 30, you know, six, um, 24 balls per car. It took a lot of balls. Yeah, it took a lot. And then they were, they were pretty pricey, so... I looked at it six months later and said, why don't I put 10 little balls in here instead of six big balls? And they were ended up from 125 bucks a ball down to 10 bucks. And that was for Parnelli Jones people with uh, NASCAR stuff? 
No, it was for IndyCars. Oh, for IndyCars. I'm sorry. Yeah, and uh, and that was one of the things that we started making in CV assemblies and got that sorted out and got them lighter, lighter, lighter. Lobro in Germany made all the CV assemblies for every production car in the world, but they were massive and heavy. You didn't need that for an IndyCar. 16, 1800 pounds, 2000 pounds the most. So that's where it all began was the drive system, meaning I mean, the half shafts, I need this, and these CVs need all the ancillary equipment for it. So we just kept at it and making parts, and then it evolved and evolved and evolved. So, how long, Ken, have you been in, in the business of? Now, I know you've got an ultra slick machine shop here in El Segundo, California, close to the beach. Uh, sunny day here uh, this this morning, and it 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 seems like this happened overnight, but that's not the case, is it? It took a while. No, I think uh, this company started, Metalor started with two partners, and uh, one of them was Rod Davis and Bruce Clegg. Both of them are dead now. Um, and I think I was about 19 years old, and I was going over on Sierra Street. I worked in a little machine shop, honing and lapping and grinding parts. I said, uh, why not try this? So, so we started a little 800-foot shop behind the beer bar and uh, that's where we began with two nickels between us and a roll of quarters probably but uh, we survived through it all and how long ago was that i'm gonna guess well it's 50 50 60 years ago 62 63 something like that i don't recall it's been it's been some time yeah it's been quite a long time and 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 we were doing a lot of stuff at the time uh, the company that I worked for was called Marion Lee Corporation. They did a lot of space shuttles, or not space shuttle, but Apollo, Apollo and Gemini programs. And we were working on all those kind of parts and uh, honing and lapping little valves and such. And all these kinds of things just kept evolving. And uh, I still stayed in the manufacturing, making making parts business. And uh, mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was pretty interesting to me because I kept learning. And the guys that that I worked for were more than willing for me to do anything that I could dream of. I mean, I ended up running the test department one time for a year or so, and it just goes on and on and on. Life just expands and expands, if you know what I'm trying to say. Well, let's talk about Formula One expansion, and your uh, whether it's a love or not, you certainly have uh, gotten involved with motorsports. So let's talk about a little bit about John Barnard and your relationship with John. Now, where did that come into play with Formula One and Ferrari? It came into play at Vell's Ford, Vell's Militage Ford in Torrance. He was shipped over here on a grain car to try and fix that car. Mm -hmm. Then he moved back to UK. And uh, I think he formed, I could be wrong, but I think, I think he formed McLaren International with um, Ron Dennis that owned McLaren, and JB, and um, a couple other guys got into this whole thing, going to make this company. and. They succeeded well, well, well beyond anybody's imagination, and they've done really well. They've all been good people to me, very, very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, appreciative of everything that, that they would let me do. I, I mean, I just looked at it as a gift. You know, I, what, I'm kind of a cowboy that, that you know, learned how to drill holes in a drill press, and so all of a sudden now I'm dealing with some of the finest minds in the world, and I'm thinking, this is great fun. Well, I think it's interesting if they're the finest minds <laughs> in the world that they picked you to uh, start with and to continue with today. And um, let's jump ahead a little bit to, to uh, your uh, production for the Formula One teams. Now, was your first team Ferrari, was that right? 
It was. Under John Barnard, uh, he, he went to work for Ferrari. So we needed to make some drive systems, some this and that, half shafts, all that stuff, some gearbox parts, hubs, spindles, a lot of things. And, and the Italians, perfectly fine, but they were pretty possessive about what they were doing. They, they really didn't want any of it to getting outside the country. So we struggled with it a little bit, but he just said, if you don't want to do it, do it yourself. You know, he was kind of that kind of a guy. And he said, you make them in-house, you can't. Mm -hmm. So we were making all this stuff out of 300M, which is a material in here in the U.S. 4340 modified back melt is what it was. But uh, I remember you could you could lose me really fast on a lot of this uh, on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, the material was it's a premium steel. It, it ends up about 52 to 54 Rockwell hardness. We've maybe broke two shafts in 30 years on some aspect of something. But tough stuff. Tough stuff, yeah, very good. Uh, every Boeing landing gear is made out of the same material. So you kind of look at it and say, oh, okay, I got it. So we've used it forever. It's reasonably inexpensive. It's readily available. And uh, we, to this day, we still use 300M back mount. Vacuum arc rebelt is a, is a pure material and alloy without any inclusions and cracks and flaws in it. So what years were you involved with the Ferrari Formula One team? I'm guessing, but I think in the mid-90s. Had to be in mid '90s, '90s, late '90s, mm -hmm. and um, that went on and on and on. And then ended up with I ended up at one time. I looked. We were running two shifts. We had with eight Formula One teams in this building at one time, trying to cater to all of them is like it's virtually impossible. I'll bet that's a lot of juggling. And who, can can you remember some of the teams? Sauber, Sauber Patronus was in. Uh, they were one. Um, who was it? A Ferrari. Ferrari, Mercedes, no, not Mercedes. I actually have to look, I'd have to find it somewhere. I don't know. You know, tell me what happened with the Honda team, because I know Honda wanted to put a lot of money into uh, Formula One. They were chasing uh, the championship, whether that was driver, but I think they're more interested in construction, the, the constructor's champion at that time. But what, what happened with Honda? Where'd they start? Where'd they end? They took over a building um, in England, which is right now where um, Mercedes F1 is. They, they went in and bought the whole thing, but Honda went into the thing thinking that they would just be a cakewalk, I think, and um, it's a difficult game and it changes hourly. Formula One does, it changes faster than the rules do. And so they couldn't quite get their budget up to time, I don't think. I think they thought they could do it with $20 million or $50 million or some number, and they were short by half. And getting all those kinds of smart people to work in that facility, they started with like 300 people. And I think Mercedes has that operation now. They're like 2,600 people doing the same job. Two drivers, two cars, backups. That's amazing. It's it's a it's a handful of work, um, and it it is more than anybody ever dreamed of. I mean, a, a full full first class Formula One team knows how far they have to go, and it's 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 long, long, long times getting it done. Should we talk about a first class Formula One team? Sure. Who are you working with right now? Mercedes only only Mercedes. Mm -hmm. 
And there has to be differences between teams, and I don't disparage anyone because everybody runs everybody runs their Formula One team differently. Whether it's a national team, because I call Ferrari a national team, but Mercedes, the Germans, the Italians, the French, whomever it is, the the Indian continent, whomever it is that is backing that team, has got to have some different visions. And share with me a little bit about how you see the Formula One teams being sort of having a different vision. Well, I think that Red Bull is a fine, fine, fine example with uh, the kid running it. He's a fantastic driver. I can't name his name. Yeah, I can't. Anyway, um, Max, Mad Max, they call him. Yeah. He's running Red Bull, and it's a German operation, German guy that owns uh, Red Bull, mm-hmm. the, the drink, and he's made, you know, more money you can count. Yeah, I think he's Austrian, isn't he? Maybe the billionaire, a cajillionaire, whatever. And he runs that thing, and Max, Mad Max runs that car and runs it with reckless abandon. He's maybe the future of, of just absolute pleasure to watch a driver drive. Most of it's just hard work, uh, but he makes it look like great fun. And and that's one of the things that you look at and says, golly, that kid is good. He is so good. And uh, he is yardsticks above anybody else. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those things you look at and say, hmm. So some of the other teams that you may uh, have in the past worked with or may uh, may have right now, uh, do those teams differ from um, uh, Mercedes, for instance? I think, I can't tell you truthfully, but I think what happens with Mercedes, they do every detail three times over. And you're working with Mercedes right now? Yeah. Yeah, we work with them all the time. Half for the, since they started, they actually came in and bought Honda. Honda walked out the door. Mercedes walked in and went from five to now twenty five hundred or so employees. Mm-hmm. They've run out of room, run out of buildings, run out of space, and they keep, just keep growing. Well, I don't want to tip off the rest of the teams, but what, in your opinion, since you've had a lot of background, a lot of experience with the Formula One people, uh, the teams, the uh, the owners, what what do they do well? They do everything well. They do everything you can imagine. They, their thought process is such that you look and says, how the hell did they figure this out? I mean, you just look and see things. We've done these half shafts or whatever for years. These guys have got something with Helix in them. They've got stuff in them. I say, yeah, I think we can do that. Yeah, sure. There's things that I've looked that are so abstract that they want that we just look at it. That's what we're doing now. Now you do it three or four times, now you got it. We can do it here in the building. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the part that Metalware has always made has been always some abstract question. The, the, the engineer would say, can you do this instead of that? Can you put a helix inside? I said, I'll call you back. I don't know. And uh, go through it for a week or two and get it sorted out and say, yeah, we can do that. So it sounds like Formula One teams are constantly, uh, what's the phrase, pushing the envelope. And they, they dump that in your lap. They do. Bits and pieces, but it's, it, it usually takes a fair amount of dialogue. And um, either Phil Jones, that works for me as manager, or me, uh, will start talking to him and say, what are you doing? Where are you going? How do you want to get there? And uh, we can get from here to there and not quite farther. But we've delegated, you know, developed a lot of things that we never thought we could do. I mean, there's some equipment out there. You look at this. What are you doing this for? That's what they want. They've asked for it. We'll do it. And these are all cheap parts. Is that right? No. No, no, no. No, they, they end up pretty pricey. But cost, cost in the game that I'm in seems to be, 
it's not irrelevant, not at all. But you got to be logical about what you're doing and why and what's it going to do and how many miles per shaft will it last? How much will it do on here? If we do silicone nitride ceramic balls, uh, if we do the best ones in the world, how much more life will they get out of the car on the, that mileage? And so it's a compromise all day long. But uh, you look at those things and say, I think this is valuable. Why don't you have a look at it? And it's not that I put a lot of emphasis on the thing to the team because they're all, I would look at them and they're five times smarter than I am. I'm just trying to apply what they want done to something we can logically do. You know, when the first time I walked into your office, and it's been a couple of meetings that we've had now, I believe, uh, we're still looking for that cold glass of wine at, at the end of the day, but we'll get, we'll get there. Um, uh, you had walked me past a wind tunnel model that you have, a very special wind tunnel model. How'd you come across that? What is it? It's, um, it's a Ferrari. It's a, it was one of Schumacher's wind tunnel models. It's a half scale. And when I bought this building that we're in now 25 years ago, it's been that long, I guess, or so, um, John Barnard flew over here to take a look at this. This is oh, it looks pretty smart. I like the way you've done it. So I was appreciative of that. But uh, we went from a little 6,000-foot building to about 15,000. And he says... He said, what are you going to put here in the lobby? He says, oh, I don't know. I'll find a wind tunnel model. I'll find a car. I'll find an Indy car or something. And I took my head in my head. I says, I don't happen to have He said, well, how about a Formula One car? He says, uh, JB, I don't have one laying around here. <laughs> and, uh, he looked at me. About 20 minutes later, walked in. And he says, you know, we've got a wind tunnel model in Switzerland. I don't think they need it any longer. I'm going to ship it to you, but if we need it back, you're going to have to fly it back to Italy. I said, okay, you're on. So I'm still sitting on the wind tunnel model. That's a hell of a deal. And when did, when did you get it? I would think probably 1990. I don't know exactly. 30 years, you think, years ago. You think he's forgotten about it? No, no, he knows about it. He, <laughs> he knows all of it. He, he doesn't forget anything. He's a good guy, but he's generally been a real, real personal friend of mine. His wife, Rosie, the two kids, all of them, they've just been the best. And so I really appreciate kind of people like that. And I'm hoping one day now, I think he is in the U.K., is that right? Mm -hmm. I'm in the U.K., one of my favorite countries in the world, and we've got close, close friends here and in England. I would love the opportunity at his convenience one day just to shake his hand and spend five minutes talking about stories. If you could arrange that, that'd be wonderful. Be more than, No, more than happy. He'd love to do it. Well, let me segue into some other interesting people you have met, because we've talked several times, as I mentioned before, and uh, the names just kind of roll off the tongue. Carol Shelby, uh, Dan Gurney, uh, all of these people that, that you have come to know. And uh, I, I'm interested in Dan Gurney. Spe speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, full-size models and half-size models and stuff like that, you have, a, you have an eagle in your garage over there, one of Dan Gurney's racing cars. How'd that come to pass? Dan, um, he was shutting down... And um, I think I talked to Kathy Weida one day. I said, do you think Dan wants to sell one of those cars? He said, sure. I'll ask him. So I was talking to him. He says, listen, I don't want a roller. A roller is a car that will roll, but it won't. It can't be started. I need a full-blown car that's ready to, ready to race less a motor. You can do that. So I said, uh, I'll buy that from you, and we'll ship it back over. They delivered it to me at the old building, and it's sitting here still to this day. Um, Nice little car, cleaned it all up, and uh, 
it's a car without an engine because the, the Toyotas were all, I think all the stuff Gurney was running was Toyotas and they were all crushed. They, when they finished the job, they crushed every one of the engines. There were none left. So there are no engines, but I mean the car is ready to go if you slap a motor in it. I never intended to drive it or anything. I just wanted a finished car. How about your relationship with Dan? Was he? Was he? I, I, obviously, I've never met Dan Gurney. Never met Dan Gurney. But how, how was he to work with? He was a perfect prince. I used to harass him. I said, Dan, what the hell makes you tick? These guys will go to the wall for you all day long. He says, Kenny, I don't know. They just, they just, you know, they're happy working here. And I mean, it just went on and on and on. I mean, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. Phil Remington was a, one of the fabricating geniuses who worked for Dan for 20 or 30 years. One day over in an old building, he come walking about 6.30 one night to pick up some parts. I thought he was just the no, local truck driver and didn't know him. And uh, he come and says, we're getting some parts for Gurney. He's oh, they're right there, take that box. And then I walked away from him. I didn't have any idea who he was. And I've come to find out it's Phil Remington. Well, he's the best fabricator in the United States, almost. And uh, after you, no, he was a good guy. And uh, I went back and had to talk to him. I said, "Kathy, where's where's Remington?" He says, "Back here." He says, "Take me back here." I got to so I never felt like a horse's ass in my life. I was walking up to so flip him off. That that box is over there. Goodbye. See ya. And uh, I didn't have a clue. It was late at night, six thirty at night, and everybody was going home. And I got to know Phil really, really, really well. And every time I'd go over there, he says, come here, come here, come here. I, I go down to Gurney's and Phil would catch his words, Kenny, I'd come here, I'll show you what we're doing. And, and I'm looking at all this crap. He's bending and shit metal and welding and this, that all day long. And he was just the greatest guy I ever met. I felt like the biggest horse's ass you've ever saw in your life when I was, yeah, there's a box. But you straightened that out. Uh, I couldn't stand myself. I, that's, I, I don't know who he was. How about, uh, how about Dan Gurney? You had a lunch or two with him. I used to go down there and, and, and I'd call Kathy. I said, Dan, there's, no, he's over at the, uh, the Spanish place. Go over there and see him there. He's waiting for you. Him and, him and Chuck. Chuck Palmgren has been there forever, too. And I'd go over and see him and have lunch and shoot the t- t- what they were doing and how come they were. They were always doing something so extreme you think, holy, oh, what are you going to do? How are you going to do that? But, uh, but ended up, you know, putting my two cents in with. I mean, one day Dan stood up and says, this lunch is over. I said, oh, I stepped on his toes big time. He was going to build a new motorcycle, a new American, United States-made motorcycle. And I thought, oh, Dan, he told me all about what he was going to do. And just, why don't you get some fork legs from, you know, somebody, get Marzuki shocks, put them all in, put a little carbon body together. He stood up and said, this meeting is over. I was like, holy crap, I really steamed him. But I was just telling him what I thought. I mean, you'll never get it done. But you guys came back together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was always good. Him and Evie, his wife, was fantastic. I got to know her pretty well. Helen and I did both. You also have a, you have a Cobra now, and it's a pretty special Cobra. Uh, you've done a lot of work on that car yourself. But um, uh, tell me about uh, your relationship with Carol Shelby. Well, that all started at, actually when I was at Wilshire Country Club. I, one of my buddies was uh, a writer. And uh, I says, you know, I'm going to build a Cobra one day. He says, you want to see Carol? I says, you got time? He says, yeah, let me make, a, make it about a week later. He calls, we're going over to Bel Air to have lunch with him. So Carol showed up. We had lunch, and I talked to him a little about a Cobra. And he says, oh, what are you going to put in? I said, I, got a, I have five little four-cam 
Indy Chevys, Indianapolis Motors, that I'm going to put one of them in. He says, oh, it's going to be too tall. I said, no, I'll shorten it up. He says, you can't do this. I'll do it. I'll fit it. It'll go. Well, hell, okay, give me the phone. He said, he grabbed the phone, pulled it up, and I think he says, Brent, Kenny Hill's coming to get a car. Take care of it. See? And who's Brent? One of the kids that worked for him in, in, in uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So I went over, saw him, showed this, had, had a whole mock-up of the whole engine, had it all done with the gearbox and everything. I made all the mock-ups and just plugged this into that Cobra. And, uh, and so we started on it. I saw, also, I made the spindles. Also, I made the half shafts. You changed a good bit about that Cobra that uh, Shelby handed off to you. What'd you do? What'd you do? I changed the whole drive system. Changed the whole drivetrain system, and uh, and it, it's to this day it hasn't got five thousand miles on it. Well, you and I have got to change that. Yeah, that'll be good. You you come over and break it in. But it was all great fun um, doing it. I enjoyed every bit of it because we could build all the stuff in house. It took forever, it seemed like, but. Uh, I never would tie up my stuff in front of the shop unless I had spare four hours to do something. So blank those out and get them ready to go, and we'll build all the stuff. And I made—I mean, I had—I found a big billet of titanium. I thought, hmm, that'll make four brake rotors, the, the floating discs. So I made a bunch of titanium discs for it. And says, are you nuts? I said, yeah, it's just something to do. So it sits over there. All this stuff been done to it. Well, like like we talked about, you and I have got to get out, get a couple of hundred thousand miles on that car. I think I'd certainly like to be part of that. But uh, you know, the other thing is too is you have uh, you have a bit of a car collection. You've started some stuff over there. Give me an idea what your favorites are and why why you picked those cars. I have no idea. It's it's selection by stupidity, really. Uh, I mean, I, I always like forty nine Cadillacs. So I found one one day and I bought it out of Chicago. And then I had the guys from Newman Haas racing. I said, do you know those guys down there? He said, yeah. Uh, do you want to take a look at that car and see how bad it is? Because they wanted, you know, a fair amount of bucks for it. And uh, said, it looks actually pretty good. No, it looks pretty good. It's a good driver. It's a good Friday night driver. And uh, so I bought it and shipped it from Chicago back here. It's sitting there I'm doing nothing. The other ones, I got a ZR1 Corvette that I bought new. Quit driving it. It's too quick. It's actually too fast to drive around town. And then I found a 5303 out at Cormier Chevrolet one time. It was a replica of a, of a new Corvette. Looks like a 53 Corvette. I ought to have that. I'll buy it for Helen. And that's an 0307 or they call... 0303, something like that. I forget what it is. It looks like a 53 Corvette. It's white and so it's sitting there doing nothing. And, um, what else? Well, you've got a couple of Ferraris. Got two Ferraris. One of them was from the guy that owned Cormier Chevrolet. He was shutting down the operation one day, and I walked by, and he says, come in, close the door. He says, you're going to buy this Ferrari right now. And he says, I don't think so. I got one Ferrari bought in 2000. That's enough. This one's got to go. i got to cash it out today. And so I made him an offer, and he says, we're trade. We're done. That's it. Cut the paperwork. So I, I, I turned around, and says, I guess I own another black Ferrari, but... It wasn't intentional. It was just one of those circumstances. So that was the 430? Yeah. 430. Okay. So you... It's an 05 430. A very, very good car, actually. Much better than the 2000 F360 mm-hmm. gearbox and all the paddle shifters. And the paddle shifters is one of the things that I was involved in from the concept with John Barnard to the finishing was the paddle shifters gearbox system. 
um, on Formula One cars. That was a very, very big project that he did, and it, and it worked out very, very well. But it's now, it's a standard line item, paddle shifters, but first one ever done, I said, what does that do, John? He says, you shift, no clutch, no this, no that. It's just automatic. And uh, he told me, I said, what, 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 what is all that for? He says, well, I've not found a driver that can pay attention to any statements I say to him yet, so I'm just taking it out of their hands. I says, they can't shift it. They just, but, but, but that's it. That's all they can do is pitch the little electronic buttons, and that's the end of their story. And that's certainly proven to be the the thing. It is. It is, in fact, that. Now, now it's a standard line item. But uh, when he was talking about it, this was a nightmare of a mess. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made a lot of the launch things, the launch it, launched it back and forth, the gears, tuning up the gears for that gearbox. Cause mm-hmm. As it shifted, it shifted so fast that it could launch the gear from second to third. It'd launch it, and if it launched it too far, it would crash another gear to fifth gear or some such thing. So now, that, was that for Ferrari? That was for McLaren? Ferrari. Ferrari. Yeah, they, I think they paid the whole tab for it. It was pretty involved. Um, and they were, Ferrari is very good with their electronics, and they're a smart, smart group of people that do all the electronic stuff, and this was all electronic shifting. I don't know, I had a 348 that had problems, but uh, we're going to go, we're going to leave that one alone. So, let me talk a little bit, too, about the future. So, right now, everything is becoming electrified, but maybe that doesn't change the fact that so many of these components have to be uh, lighter or stronger slash lighter electrification. That's that's the future, of course. Sure, sure. It, it, the whole thing is that. I mean, probably the most emphasis on F1, all F1 teams is electronics of some type. It's all new widgets, new this, uh, things that I'm unfamiliar with, but uh, they're, they're getting the job done in a horrendously rapid speed. I mean, if you listen to a Formula One car now and you can't even hear it shift, it's done, it's instant, it's in milliseconds. And they've been able to do that with electronics that is very, very, very reliable, it looks like. And so mechanical shifting is now becoming a thing of the past. So when does, when do, I know this is gonna be after, probably long after you and I are dead, but when will they ship the last internal combustion engine to the Smithsonian? I haven't got a clue. I haven't even been able to think that far. Um, no idea. But uh, the changes, the changes in internal combustion engine are still continuing. They don't stop. Um, there's always somebody creating something new uh, that ends up a baseline two years later and uh, says, oh, this is what we do now. Mm-hmm. How the heck did you guys sort that out? But um, there's always somebody looking to do something better, and uh, they're not, they're, they don't have the patience to wait for something. You know what? I see Formula One, and obviously that's always been internal combustion engines until just not a handful of seasons ago when everything started to change. Now we've got the E-Formula One series, and I was at, uh, at the L.A. Auto Show at Press Days, and then we literally could sit in and step on and walk around Porsche's new um, uh, all-electronic Formula One car that they will camp- campaign, of course. That's the future? I have to assume so, because that still has a lot of growth. There's no end to the growth in electronics, I don't think. Um, You may think differently, but I don't think that anybody's going to stop it. 
Ken, you're a car guy like me. So I always ask a couple of questions at the end. And number one, um, if you if you could go out and buy a car, cash in everything you've got, your dream car, everything in the world, money, no object, what would you buy? I have no idea. <laughs> Smart I answer. I haven't got a clue. Um, I would just, you know, it might be a new, I don't know. It may be a new Ferrari because of, because of Ferrari's name and Ferrari's legitimacy and all those things. I mean, Ferrari is still a appreciated piece of hardware that no matter who it is, they're really appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, anybody else's? Maybe I'm, I mean, I thought about a McLaren. McLaren would be a great fun car, but you look at it 78 years old, you look at it and says, this thing's hard to get in and out of. Mm -hmm. It's down on the ground. So you look at that and you find people says, you drive it much? says, I can't get out of that car. Or you can get in and you can't get yeah, out. Yeah. You, you fall in. you got to have somebody pull you out, though. <laughs> I think that's true. But uh, I find myself that, that the cars that I have, uh, I, I've not lost interest in them at all, but they're not as much fun to drive as they were new. And they're just a car. Um, there's too many choices. I think I got 16 cars over there, and that's too many. This might be a question that we'll end on, but Ken, um, if uh, someday you may decide to step down, and you might want to sell Metalore to someone, young guy, young gal, comes in the door with uh, fresh eyes, fresh, fresh thoughts. What would you, with all the experience you put in since, and you started in this business when you were just a kid, a teenager, what, what would, if you sat them down for a couple of minutes, what would you tell them to concentrate on? What would you tell them to do uh, to, to maintain the business and to grow it now? I think customer base is the heart and soul of all of it. And you don't need a lot of customers. You need more than one or two, though. You don't need to be dependent on any one of them. You can't bet on a customer no matter what you are. Um, so having a diversity to work on X, Y, and Z is probably the smartest thing you can do in a job shop is make sure you can make a widget and a wedget and something else. Um, making consistent parts because you're good at it uh, is fine, but that's, that's not going to get you that far, I don't think. So if, if somebody's out there and they say, you know what, I've got this car that I need to lighten up, it's got to go faster, all that kind of stuff, I assume that they can just email you and say, Mr. Hill, can you make this for me? Um, yeah, we could, but it gets horrendously expensive. I mean, we're good at making 10 or 12 parts, um, 48 parts, 100 parts. Um, doing a pair of half shafts is... It ends up, you know, a couple hundred bucks an hour. You can eat up a lot of time and just have a picture of what you think it should be. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's not for me and not for Metal Lord to, to put its effort in to do one pair of something for a guy because he wants them. I don't care if he has enough money or not. It doesn't make any common sense whatsoever to make one pair of half shafts. Right. But if Elon Musk comes in the door and says, geez, can, do you, can you put off about 10,000 pairs of these for, an, for a new Tesla? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, well, I don't know we'd do 10,000, but we could do a lot of parts. We do, we're very good at 12, 24, 100, 200, 350. That's about where we stop. I always said that in the shop, if all of us tried to count this thing, we couldn't come up with a roll of nickels with the same quantity. <laughs> if you know what I mean, it's, it's a miscount somewhere, but um, lots of quantities is not great fun. 
the interesting people that I meet in the motorsports world. Ken Hill, I want to thank you. I want to thank Metalor. I'm certainly appreciative of your time. I know you have, uh, you've already uh, agreed to become a guest speaker at our first little uh, uh, distinguished speaker thing we're going to hear, have here in Manhattan Beach just uh, really soon. But uh, I want to thank you for the time. It has been enlightening, as always. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to come over.